to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. It's impossible to have any significant conversation about the internet and social media without eventually touching on one topic, safety. It's a concern on everyone's mind to some extent, and that's especially true for parents. In the Lisa Show's series on your online persona so far, we've talked about how we present ourselves to the world through social media in different ways. And while I'm sure that's a concern, there are often bigger worries on our minds. What if someone gets access to my personal information? What if my kids meet someone shady online? How can I keep up with all the new tech coming out to keep me and my family safe? I mean, I'm having to worry about things that 10 or 20 years ago, we never dreamed would be issues. As a mom of five, I'm constantly and consistently amazed about how the conversations around technology have changed in 15 years. I mean, I didn't think I'd be having conversations about artificial intelligence and TikTok in the way that I have this last year alone. 15 years ago, I was worried about the ramifications of my kids being obsessed with their Tamagotchis or electronic pets. And now I couldn't care less about that. Now news organizations and outlets are reporting the epidemic of loneliness in our country, specifically citing a national need to reform digital environments to critically evaluate our relationship with technology. We are not, as a society, doing well, and it's time for us to reevaluate where we're going and this constant change. One of the hardest parts of this issue is that technology is changing every day. It would be impossible to cover all of the tools and methods for protecting your kids and your information in one podcast. So in today's show, we want to tackle the principles of safety that won't become outdated when a new iPhone is released. I want us all to know that we're not alone in the struggle for safety and that there are steps that we can take that will prepare us for whatever new tech or social platform gets thrown at us next. Later on, we'll hear from a data privacy professional and a mental health expert about how we can use the internet as safely as possible. But first, I talked to my friend Ricardo about an experience he had with a scammer. And while not all of us are going to be scammed, I think the emotions he felt are similar to what we all feel when we think about online safety. Well, my name is Ricardo Rosas. And um, basically this year, I've been about to be scammed twice. And it has not been fun. Ricardo works as a full-time graphic designer and is the first to admit that while he considers himself to be online savvy, he's no computer expert. He told me about one of these scam attempts when his wife received a call from someone claiming to be an Xfinity technician. We didn't really give any second thought to it because in the past we we got a phone call from Xfinity and they told us that we were paying too much for our internet plan and that we could be saving $100 if we switch our plan. They didn't ask us for any personal information uh, or account or anything like that. That wasn't an issue. But last week, this person called, my wife answered, and because they have called once before, we were like, okay, we're not going to really question it. Ricardo told me about how the so-called technician told Ricardo that his online settings were incorrect and that they would have to change them manually. So basically, this, this person sets me an application that I install on my home computer to be able to remotely view my desktop. 
So he's there. He's looking at the terminal and he shows me, he told me to type something. I forgot what he told me to type. But I didn't know that through terminal, they could see everything that was in my computer. The technician told Ricardo that because his setting had been incorrect, he was eligible for a $600 refund. And all he needed to do was log into his bank account so they could wire him the money. It was then that Ricardo knew that something was wrong. And I told him, I don't want to do that because you're connected to my computer. He was very persistent. He told me, well, type in the notes that you decline the refund. I'm like, okay, I type. And he was like, I guess that's it, but just stay connected. As soon as he hung up, I called Xfinity and I talked to a real technical support. And they told me, yeah, we will never ask you to log into your account. We will never ask you to get into your computer remotely. I asked Ricardo how he felt in the moment when he realized he was so close to being scammed. Just a strong feeling of anxiety and vulnerability in a bad way. I think that there's vulnerability that is empowering, but this is the bad one where you feel people have taken advantage of your good heart and your honest efforts. Um, And I felt violated. It's not fun. Ricardo specifically mentioned anxiety and vulnerability. I think that these are two emotions that a lot of us feel when we think about exposing ourselves and our kids to strangers online. We want to use online tools to make our lives easier, but it can be scary to be vulnerable with our personal information and our emotions when there are so many ways that people can take advantage of us. And that anxiety and vulnerability doesn't only apply to financial scammers and online predators. There's also an emotional vulnerability that comes when we meet new people online that can be scary and sometimes dangerous. There's just nothing like the feeling of vulnerability when you put yourself out there online and you don't know how it's going to be received. For me specifically, if I'm on a new group, for example, I'm on groups for widows, And it's really vulnerable to sort of post what you feel because you don't know how it's going to be received. And it's about a topic that's particularly vulnerable and emotionally charged. The same is true with dating sites online. I find myself posting things and thinking, well, is this really who I am? Am I really representing myself correctly? Are they? And it feels very emotionally and vulnerable to be able to put yourself out there knowing that you might be misinterpreted. With that in mind, I talked to both a mental health expert and a data privacy expert. The mental health expert will help us learn how to protect ourselves emotionally while navigating the internet. But first, the data privacy expert will help us get started avoiding scams and predators online. Here's Trent Ray, founder of The Cyber Safety Project. So one of the things that we also focus on is looking out for the red flags. So what are the types of questions that someone you don't know might be asking you and knowing exactly what is my personal information? What is my secure information? What should I never share online? And I think that's really important for them to know, even writing down as a family, your list of our personal and secure information, things that we would never share online. That's really important. And then how to understand um, maybe some steps to walk away from that situation if we've discovered that we're in it. 
like blocking the user, reporting that user to the Apple application? What conversations can you have with me as your parent? Where could we get help and support even through online services if something is going wrong for us? So really, again, empowering kids to know the steps. And when we talk about them with kids, they then see us as someone that has some knowledge about this stuff. So if something goes wrong for them online, they're going to have confidence that they can come and talk to us about this. Now, you heard Trent say the phrase going wrong a couple of times. So what does going wrong actually look like when we're online? I think that there are some obvious answers, like a scammer getting access to your bank account or a dangerous person interacting with a child. But I think there are also some less obvious ways to go wrong online. Things like getting stuck in a doom-scrolling downward spiral that really hurts your mental health or saying something hurtful to a stranger that you wouldn't ever say in real life. These subtle ways of going wrong can be hard to recognize and even harder to talk to your kids about. More often than not, my kids always assume that they know more about technology and social media than I do. So what can I do as the adult to help insulate them from the negative forces that are all around them? Here's what Trent had to say. Well, first and foremost, building a positive relationship with your children and talking positively about technology is so important. I think a lot of kids that we talk to say that they feel as though their parents are maybe naysayers of technology, constantly nagging them about why technology is not good or that get off your devices. And that creates a bit of a barrier, I guess, for young people to feel that their parents or their trusted adults in their world are the safe people to turn to, to ask for help and support. Here in Australia, we survey um, young people that we work with, and we found out that one in three young people would turn to a parent first if something went wrong for them online. That means two in three kids wouldn't speak to their parents if something was going wrong for them online. And we really wanted to interrogate why that was the case. And one of the big reasons is that they're scared that their parents are going to flip out if they tell them that something goes wrong. Or they're also worried that their parents are going to take the devices away from them if they've maybe made a mistake online. So I do think we need to be thinking differently about our dispositions around technology conversations with our children. And if we can be talking positively and uh, and openly about technology and how we're using it, the challenges that we might be personally facing as grown adults using technology are all small ways that over time we can build their capacity and understanding about why it's so important to stay safe online, but also how we can do it too. There's sometimes this tendency, or there was with me back in the day, to say something like, well, this is all too much. (laughs) It's just too much time, brain space, and certainly too many different gaming systems and cords and accessories, and none of them are compatible, and you always have to buy a new system. I don't know. It's not worth it. It's just a hassle. So let's just not mess with any of it, right? And I get that tendency. It's not like buying a board game in a box. It's HDMI cords and mess, and there's the time of regulating it and understanding it. And then when I had relented thinking, well, okay, it's just games. It was suddenly online, and strangers can play with you. What? When did that happen? And it sounds horrible, but you don't know anything about it because you've never played it. You didn't grow up with this kind of technology. That's how I felt when it first all unfolded with my kids. My kids, unknowing to me, were playing on an open server before I even knew what that meant. That was a huge mistake. I asked my oldest, who taught himself coding, I mean, which is so smart, but again, completely out of my comfort zone, to sort of hold off once I understood what that 
meant. And we talked about my fears and him not having any fears. And after our conversation, he decided that the best option was to set up a private server for our family and friends, people that we know in real life, to play. Now, my oldest, Miles, taught me how to evaluate technology better by asking me calmly, <laughs> you know, at like 12, what are you afraid of? And I would say something reasonable like, well, I'm afraid of you guys talking to a bunch of creeps online who are either going to steal your identity or your innocence and then find out where we live and kidnap you and show you gross things. And because those were the things that I was really scared of at that time. And how funny is that? Because now I'm scared about a lot of different things. <laughs> anyway, that's another topic. Miles wasn't worried about that because he was confident of his skills, but in my estimation, underestimated the emotional and social you know, power of his 14-year-old self. So we continued to have these kinds of conversations. It's not just about not buying the stuff or setting time limits on how much they play. It's having the conversations. Why are you going online? What are the reasons? What do you get out of it? Is it helping you reach your goals in life? Is it helping you become a good person? Are you being smart? Are you being safe? So now my kids will answer those kinds of questions because they seem to have a real answer instead of just an answer that's concerned with control. My kids know that if they answer those questions to me confidently, that I'll be satisfied. But it's this ongoing trust and conversation that is the real intensity of monitoring our identity online. And this is the tricky part of parenting. You know, we're never going to be totally perfect about this because we're never going to be perfect about any aspect of parenting. But building that trust is just as much about admitting our own failures or ignorance as it is about sharing what we do know. Trent had some specific advice for handling the mistakes that we'll make, both parents and kids, along the way. Well, I think that the key word is mistakes, and we're all human and we sometimes make them. And one of the best things I think we can do as parents for our children is to tell our kids that there's no, no thing that you would ever say or do that I wouldn't forgive or a mistake that we couldn't work together to solve. And I think if we can have that conversation with our kids, that will build their trust to come and talk to us if something goes wrong. And maybe even showing them some of the mistakes that you made because it's real to them. It's, it becomes a story. It becomes more contextualized. But if you can say, well, I've decided to remove that post of our house where it has our house number on it because it's not safe for us to have our address online, that's an introduction to the conversation about, well, why is it not safe to have a photo of our house on the internet so that you can start that why conversation? So many kids tell us today that, you know, parents are telling us, be safe, don't do this, don't do that online. But what about the why conversation? Why is it not safe for us to behave that way online. And if we can help them understand that, that empowers them to make better choices. These mistakes that Trent is talking about can be obvious, encountering something inappropriate online or falling for a scam, but they can also be subtle and not as easy to detect. Like I mentioned earlier, online safety is a lot more than just protecting your passwords. There are things that on the surface don't seem bad, but that over time will be corrosive to our mental and emotional health. So in order to get the full picture of how to be safe online, I talked to mental health educator and author Natasha Devon to complement the advice that we heard from Trent. Here she is explaining one way that using social media can impact our mental health. 
Well, it's interesting because I think when most people hear the words online safety, they think of things like having two-factor authentication on your apps and not clicking on phishing links on emails. They think of keeping your information safe, whereas I'm much more concerned with our emotional safety online. And that has to do with how much we are happy to share Um, and our understanding of how far the information we put out about ourselves on the internet can travel, who can see it, how it can be used, and the impact that being part of this, you know, thinking about this in relation to mental health and, and my work in advocacy, something that I had to do was I had to create a version of my story that is true. It's it's all completely truthful what I share when I'm talking to young people and, and at events. But it's not all-encompassing. It doesn't include every single trauma I've ever had in my life. It gives an overview of my story. It gives a narrative that hopefully will help the audience to learn something. And I had to do that because sharing your story over and over again and talking about things in your life that have had a really profound impact on you can be an exercise in kind of re-traumatizing yourself over and over and over again. And I think in a way, the act of being online is an act of creating a version of your story that is as authentic as it can be without having to revisit things that you're not necessarily ready to revisit. And I think one of the most common pitfalls is seeing an online conversation and thinking, I am perfectly placed to contribute to this because I've been through that, or they're describing my struggle or my identity, but not taking a moment to think, am I ready to have this conversation or is it still too raw for me to be able to do that? I love the way Natasha frames the decision to share online. It's not just about whether you're sharing delicate personal information or not, but it's also about how sharing this information will affect your mental health. I asked Natasha for advice on knowing when to share. Sometimes it's okay to sit this one out. (laughs) That's a piece of advice that I would give. So uh, to to give you an example of something that's happened really recently, um, yesterday here in the UK, one of our politicians, a very high profile politician who is a, a black woman, Um, made some comments in a national newspaper which many people consider to be anti-Semitic. And I'm sitting there going, okay, I I have black elements of my heritage, I have Jewish elements to my heritage. I have so many thoughts. I've done so much deep thinking on this issue. And then I looked at some of the conversation around this news story And I thought, actually, do I want to put myself through that with people who haven't done deep thinking, people who are bringing their own experiences and their own traumas to the table, people who are angry, actually, and want to express their anger online? Maybe I'll just sit this one out. And it's a really useful piece of advice, I think, for any young person to go, do you know what? You don't have to jump in with both feet straight away when whenever there's a trend, whether it's on TikTok or Instagram or whatever it is. Sometimes it's okay to opt out. Now, something that I've learned, especially in the last few years of tense online political conversations, is that this can be extra complicated when it comes to topics that hit close to home. 
There are certain parts of my identity or things that I feel so strongly about because they personally affect me and my kids that I immediately have my senses up when I encounter them online. So things like my religion or sexual orientation or political beliefs that I feel really strongly about, those kinds of flags immediately give me an emotional response And then I read what is said about it. And that secondary response makes me a little bit more invested in whatever is being said. If I feel like anyone is saying anything remotely negative about me or my family and what we hold dear, our personal beliefs and the way that we want to live our lives, it is really hard for me to respond in a measured way. And I think that's true of all of us, that when we have a strong emotional response to something online, it can be more tempting to engage in a way that is unhealthy or unsafe. I love what Natasha had to say about this. Here she is. There's a brilliant book, actually, by an author called Ashley Dotty Charles, and it's called Outraged, Why Everybody's Shouting and No One's Talking. And she encourages us to see our outrage as like currency in the bank. You have to spend it wisely. So she, you know, sets out her stall at the beginning by saying she is a black lesbian. So she's a woman, she's a lesbian, and she's black. So she says, you know, if I was outraged by everything that is outrageous in the context of those three communities that I belong to, I would be outraged all the time and I would burn out and I would very quickly become exhausted. So what she has chosen to do instead is just to pick the issue or couple of issues that she is most passionate about, where she can bring about tangible change and focus her energies on those things. And I always say that particularly to the teenagers that I work with, a lot of them are really into activism and they want to use their voice online to to bring about change. And I think it's wonderful that they have that enthusiasm for that. But I always say to them, okay, but pick the thing that you're going to invest in and, and try to see the rest as almost like white noise. You can see it like a patchwork quilt. There's um, a very famous quote that I forget that is, is about feminism and, it, and it's, we all have our square and when you sew it all together, it creates this patchwork quilt that is all encompassing, but you only have to focus on your square. You don't have to do everything all at once. I love Natasha's advice for becoming advocates on subjects that we feel passionately about while still staying safe and protecting our emotional health. Now, something that's been a struggle for my kids for a long time has been finding role models. I mean, we all know the big joke about how all kids now want to be a famous TikTok, you know, influencer. And some of the the information that comes out of influencers and specifically male artists um, and musicians and rappers that have come out in recent years have really emotionally impacted my kids. They have been devastated to find out that their favorite musicians have failed in in some moral way or turned out to be somebody that they didn't think that they were. And they've had a real hard time trying to come to terms with, well, should I still listen to this artist? Do I still follow them and like them? Or am I becoming complicit in this kind of behavior. And these are interesting questions, especially online, to have as people report different information, finding out what's true, and then being able to deal with it. But what I've been surprised with is the real 
emotional response and sort of this distance that my kids have had of saying, oh, well, is everyone awful? Where are the role models? And being able to have those kinds of discussions about who we look up to and why and what kind of art we consume and why and our reasoning behind that has taken up a lot of mental health uh, conversations in our home, much more than I ever had with my parents. I asked Natasha about what advice she has for young people looking for someone to look up to. This is a really important aspect to the discussion, I think. And um, I think for any adults in a, a young person's life, the tendency can be to dismiss role models because you don't understand what they are offering to young people or what young people are getting out of them. And therefore, the conversation is not necessarily very productive. So we, we had this recently with, um, we had a very misogynistic online influencer who gained an enormous amount of traction with boys and young men in particular. And what was happening was teenage boys were asking their teachers in assemblies what they thought about this influencer and then recording it secretly and then posting it to TikTok and tagging the influencer in it in a kind of look you're being talked about way and thus kind of adding to the traction that he was getting online. Um, so I think actually a, a better approach and, and certainly the approach that I took was to say in as non-judgmental way as possible, okay, what is it that this guy is offering you that you think is valuable? And, you know, boys were telling me that they often were feeling anxious and like they didn't understand what their place was in the world. And, and here was somebody who was giving them a very structured, very simple set of rules to live by. And it's like, okay, well, if that's what you need, let's point you in the direction of other people who will give you that structure that you're craving, but not in a misogynistic way with this kind of hateful philosophy and hateful ideology attached. So I pointed them in the direction of some other male role models online who, um, you know, would be better for them overall. Um, so it is, you know, it's really difficult because there's 3 billion people on the internet and some of them are incredible role models and some of them aren't. But I think we always need to start from a place of, of curiosity rather than judgment when having those discussions with, with young people. I love that idea from Natasha of starting from curiosity rather than judgment, which I also heard on Ted Lasso. We're all looking for connection, and the internet can be a wonderful place to meet new people from different walks of life. And yet, again, we have a loneliness epidemic that's cutting years off of our lives as much as heavy smoking. And our teenage girls especially are more depressed and anxious than ever before, so we're not using technology in a way that's good. I particularly had felt that during the pandemic, like lots of people. But after the death of my husband, I felt a loneliness in a different way that I haven't ever felt before. And I found some widow support groups and some widow support groups outside of my religious tradition and within my religious tradition as a way to connect with people who have been through what I've been and are going through what I'm going through. 
And connecting with them online, there was something about that sort of anonymity but also closeness that has helped me feel connected in a way that I wouldn't have another way because I just know myself that I wouldn't walk into an in-person widow-widower support group without at least making sure that I knew what sort of the environment was before I went in, which is exactly what I did. And so this online community facilitated a way for me to meet other widows and widowers in real life. And that kind of connection, that example of just using technology as a way to introduce me, a real connection that I was looking for that I could not find in my real life, is a success story for me. And I know that other people have experiences like that. It's why we're drawn to it. But whether it's a support group online or a dating site or an Etsy site, it all requires a certain level of vulnerability, and that can lead to potentially unsafe situations. I mean, we've all heard stories of extreme cases like catfishing or predators. I asked Natasha how she suggests approaching meeting new people online. Here's what she had to say. Well, I think the the first and most important thing to in terms of newbies to the online environment of any age, but particularly children and young people, is to understand that people are not who they say they are online. And that can be in the most obvious sense of somebody can adopt an entirely new identity, but it can also be in terms of we edit out anything about ourselves that we think is imperfect or embarrassing or a flaw in how we show up online. So when we are forming connections, I always think of it as like you're sending in your representative into the online space. So your representative is forming a connection with somebody else's representative. And that doesn't mean that that connection uh, can't be valuable, but it, it does mean that it leaves you a little bit vulnerable in terms of what else you might discover about that person. So it, it's important to to hold a little bit back. And I think as well, there's this... Um, this is not strictly related to what you asked, but it's kind of following on from what I just said. There's a tendency to buy wholesale into online role models or people you form a relationship with online. And you're like, I love them. I love everything about them. I love everything they do. And then the minute they do something that falls outside of that idea of them that you have created in your head, you go, okay, I hate them now. <laughs> you know, people are imperfect. I always say it's okay to say, I admire this about this person. I love this aspect of their work. I love this aspect of their character or their personality. That's what I really respect and, and admire. But that doesn't mean that they are my personal guru. Ultimately, it can be so hard to keep up with what's changing. From new social media platforms, to new tech, to new scams, to new ways to make genuine friends online. It often feels like an impossible challenge to try and stay ahead of it all when it comes to our kids. Trent told me about a specific mnemonic, content, collection, and connection, that can help us identify unsafe online spaces. The number one thing that we encourage parents to do is to make sure that you've got enough of an open relationship with your child that you, A, understand how they're using that technology when they are playing online and making sure that we're supervising them in communal and open spaces, particularly for young children when they're online. The second thing that we really encourage you to do is to know that one game or social network that your child uses and look out for three things. The three things that you need to know. You need to look out for the content that they're going to see and be exposed to. So a quick Google search, a YouTube video on that tool or, or, or website or game. 
first and foremost. So what content will they see and be exposed to? Secondly, we want to look out for what information is collected about our kids. So that the three C's I'm using. So content, collection, and connection. So the collection is, you know, what kind of questions does it ask my young person when they're signing up to build an online profile for a game or a social network? And then the third thing is, how can people connect with my child? If we know how that tool works, we also will be able to find and locate privacy settings, well-being settings that we can switch on and turn off to help our child set them up safely. And we encourage parents to do that with their children. I love Trent's mnemonic. First, understand the content that our kid is consuming in this specific online space. Second, understanding the collection that is happening. What information or data is that space collecting from your child? And third, understand the connection that is happening in that space. Who is your child interacting with and who is reaching out to them? Identifying the content, collection, and connection of any new social media platform or video game will give us a groundwork for keeping our kids in a safe, constructive space. You know, there are other ways, of course, that I want to keep my kids safe online. But I find that most of my conversations with other parents about the dangers of technology tend to focus on the amount of screen time and what they're doing, like when and how to check content, like we're trying to catch them doing something that we suspect they're doing, or if the game or text messaging is appropriate to our family standards. It's the worst feeling to catch them doing something you know isn't good, because then what? I think they're the wrong conversations. The real conversations and questions are, why are we going online? What are we looking for? Recreation? Numbing pain? Looking for connection, friendships, validation? And what are the effects? Or is it working? Or are they feeling, as the data suggests, loneliness, poor body image, comparison, depression, and anxiety? The tipping point, the usage, the time and content will have a different effect on different kids and ourselves. We can't follow a prescribed lists of do's and don'ts and expect it to have the same effect on each kid and then wash our hands of the problem. Not just because every kid is different, but because the technology and apps and games and all of it are constantly changing. So these are the conversations that we need to be having with our kids. The day is over where we just monitor everything and expect them to obey. <laughs> the days of control are over. But the good news is that the kinds of conversations that we have will build trust, will build relationships, will have us connected to each other in real life even more and use the best of technology. And with that in mind, I think that if we're gonna be that intentional and deliberate about understanding how our kids are using the internet, why wouldn't we be just as careful about our own usage? Whatever new changes happen year after year, I know that we can be prepared to stay as safe as possible. Safe not only in what information we share and with whom, but also safe in how we let the internet affect our mental and emotional health. And I know that you're worth it, and so is your family, and your mental health deserves to be protected just as much as your passwords. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. It's hosted by Lisa Valentine-Clark and produced by Becca Hurley, McKay Menden, and Tabitha Freitas with music and post-production by Josh Fouts. Make sure you check out The Lisa Show Book Club on YouTube and your favorite podcasting platforms. This season, each week Lisa is joined by a guest to dive into a chapter of Sherry Turkle's Alone Together. 
You won't want to miss it.